Jihad is one of the most explosive and interesting concepts that uh, divides Muslims and Christians today. The series of the next five lectures will explore the meanings of classical jihad and take the audience up to the present day. In a series of uh, explorations of textual, historical, and religious themes that uh, are behind this complicated subject. In order to start off, we have to take a look at what are traditional definitions of the word jihad. Already there, we find problems. That the word jihad, as we find it inside the Quran, actually is not uh, anywhere near as present concerning fighting as one would suspect. The word jihad, linguistically, in Arabic, has to do with striving. It's clear, as one looks through the Muslim historical and religious material, that over a long period of time, the word jihad came to be used as, so as something of a euphemism for fighting. For fighting in what way? There can be a number of different ways of fighting. The way, uh, the way that we're most commonly familiar with is actual military exploits, and that will be the, the focus of most of these lectures. But there are other interpretations of jihad that are available and are sometimes used by contemporary Muslims. Traditional Muslims generally focus upon jihad as what we could call God-mandated warfare that is with the intention of either expanding Islam or defending its boundaries, or in other cases of attacking apostate Muslims or punishing those that are considered to be deviants. This traditional definition can be found uh, behind a number of different legal texts and historical uh, materials that we find in, uh, in classical Islam and continues to be present in conservative and also radical circles, which we'll discuss uh, later on in lecture number five. However, this interpretation is one that, needless to say, certain contemporary Muslims are uncomfortable with. And so there are other different interpretations of jihad. Those focus on jihad as fighting uh, one's spiritual instincts, namely baser, sinning, lower instincts, uh, sometimes Satan himself or other different spiritual activities that uh, are concurrent with that. In general, these uh, particular definitions of, Islam, of, of jihad are to be localized with Sufi groups that uh, throughout the centuries also fought jihad in a military sense, but developed a whole series of discussions about the spiritual significance of, of jihad. These particular definitions were uh, attractive to especially to 19th century Muslims who, under the onslaught of Christian missionization and westernization of their countries, sought to find some sort of irenic, uh, non-military justification for doctrines concerning jihad. And so these two opposite uh, definitions of jihad clash today in the, contem in the contemporary world. We find continually... Uh, within Muslim uh, language materials, emphasis upon the military aspect of jihad, whereas in, uh, in foreign languages, and especially in apologetic material, emphasis upon the spiritual, the defensive uh, nature, and essentially the irenic uh, nature of jihad. It's not impossible to bring these two definitions together. 
Uh, and indeed, classically, Muslims did. Sufis oftentimes participated in uh, actual fighting and did not uh, merely maintain some sort of uh, distance from the battlefield. And a, a classical warriors oftentimes emphasized their spiritual preparation prior to their actual setting out on the battlefield. So in order to discuss jihad, we have to go back to the actual sources. And here, uh, the most important source to start off with is the Quran. Now, there are a great many problems in discussing jihad inside the Quran. The first one I've already alluded to, that the primary word discussing fighting or battle inside the, inside the Quranic materials is not derivative from jihad. It's usually the word kital, which has to do with fighting. And so we'll discuss at a later time the process or the reconstructed process by which the word jihad came to be attached to the Muslim conception for fighting. But this uh, particular point, the fact that the, that, the, that the Quran does not actually use jihad very much for the material that I'm going to be citing for you, is uh, also an apologetic one and is frequently used by apologists in order to uh, highlight the supposedly Iranic side of the Quran. The other problem that we have with the Quran has to do with the chronology. Uh, the Quran has a, a vast amount of contradictory materials and so has been, uh, for legal purposes, rearranged into verses that uh, abrogate and verses that are abrogated. In other words, those verses that were chronologically, according to the scheme, revealed earlier are abrogated by those that were revealed later. Now, this has some bearing upon the issue of jihad, because it, at least according to classical uh, descriptions of the, of the beginnings of Islam, which I won't say that I uh, find w uh, to be without any problems, um, the Muslim community definitely had a, a period of time where it was simply oppressed. And so, not surprisingly, verses from that particular time would emphasize the weakness, the powerlessness of the, uh, of the Muslim community. So, uh, again, we, we find within the Quran section verses that simply uh, either mandate some sort of peace, some sort of uh, common ground between Muslims and non-Muslims, and uh, definitely tend to avoid violence. That's usually considered by scholars to be stage number one. Uh, when the Muslim community is considered to be weak, uh, it, uh, it calls for a common ground uh, with its opponents and uh, does not involve the use of jihad, at least in a military sense. The second stage is uh, when jihad is uh, used in a defensive way. And we find verses that uh, concern this, that uh, the Muslims are allowed to attack when they are attacked, uh, and presumably those things would date from the, uh, the first part of the Muslim community's experience in the oasis town of Medina, when Islam began to actually exist as a political entity. The third stage allows Muslims to go on an offensive, but keeps it within certain boundaries. This stage presumably dates from the later Medinan 
time where gradually Muslims are gaining in power and significance throughout the Arabian Peninsula. And then the last stage is the uh, most famous verse from Surah number 9, which we'll discuss in a few minutes, uh, uh, called the verse of the sword, which uh, essentially allows fighting uh, without any particular limits until there is some sort of victory. Now, these stages are not without their critique, and they do present Islam in a rather uh, schematic form that is a little bit too comfortable for scholars. But they do serve for our purposes as a useful reference uh, for dividing up the Quran into some sort of coherent uh, thought process. Now, taking a look at the Quran, uh, there are a number of different surahs that speak specifically or concentrate uh, overall about jihad. Uh, and most of these are connected in some way or another with Muhammad's battles. And those are uh, of a large number. Um, it's difficult to say precisely how many battles Muhammad actually fought. The usual number is somewhere between 81 and 87. Um, but those battles can be divided up usefully into several different groups. And we'll allude to those uh, throughout this lecture and the following lecture. Um, the first group has to do with what I refer to as the thematic battles. These are a series of five battles that uh, Muhammad fought against his kinsmen, the Quraysh, uh, in order to achieve victory over them and to come to dominate his hometown of Mecca, uh, which he did in 630. And it was through that process that he essentially became the first uh, ruler of the Arabian Peninsula. Now, those battles are the ones that are mentioned the most inside the Quranic material. And they clearly form the most uh, important and formative aspect of the growing Muslim community. But uh, the Prophet's military record is rather a mixed one. Of those five battles, he won, uh, won one, lost the second, the, uh, the third was a draw, uh, the fourth was uh, a peaceable victory, which essentially overwhelmed his opponents, and uh, the fifth was an almost loss that victory was pulled out at the very, very last moment. So one can't say that the Prophet Muhammad was actually uh, a military genius so much as he was a very good political operator. He had the ability to politically consolidate after each uh, of these particular battles in a way that favored the Muslim community immensely. Uh, we'll come back to the surahs that are associated with each one of those uh, battles in just a moment. Um, the second group of battles has to do with uh, Muhammad's domination over the oasis town of Medina, uh, in which the Muslims were a decided minority when they first appeared, and the town was uh, economically and religiously dominated by the Jewish tribes that lived in that area. And so that second group of battles is primarily against the Jews uh, and then secondarily against uh, those uh, Arab tribes that had allied themselves with the Jews. This material also uh, is very prominent inside the Quran and lends sections of the Quran to a highly polemical tinge against the Jews. 
Um, a third group, and by far the, uh, the, the most important from a numerical point of view, is uh, the, the numerous raids that the prophet made against uh, Bedouin tribes that were around Medina, mainly in order to punish them. Now, these are just barely alluded to inside the Quran. Um, where there are frequently derogatory comments about uh, about the Bedouin and their unwillingness to fight and so forth, or their hypocrisy and the need to fight them and so forth. Um, the fourth group is the one that's the most important uh, for uh, for historical point, point of view, uh, which is the last three raids that the prophet put forth, uh, which were against the Byzantine Empire. And those are the most interesting because they take us to the bridge point between Muhammad's career and uh, the great Islamic conquest that were to happen over the next hundred years after his death. So we will come back to those different points. Let's now take a look at the Quranic material. Um, one of the problems with dealing with the Quran is uh, deciding what translation to use. Um, and I don't know that I will force anybody into my translation, but I, I do tend to use the Majid Fakhri edition of uh, the Quran in modern English. So turning to Surah number 8. Surah number 8 is closely associated with uh, the, ba the Battle of Badr in 624, uh, which was the Muslims' victory, the first victory, and probably the only battle that you could honestly say that if Muslims had lost it, uh, Islam would probably would have ceased to exist. Um, surah number eight is uh, is uh, not surprisingly of a very triumphalistic uh, tendency, uh, and it brings out very strong theological importance to the battle. It is not just the Muslims that are fighting the battle. But God is fighting alongside. So, and, and we find this very strong uh, link between performance in the battle and one's faith that you don't find in very many other religions. For example, in verse number 16 of Surah 8, it says, Whoever turns his back on that day, in other words, the fighting day, unless preparing to resume fighting or joining another group, incurs Allah's wrath and his refuge is, is in hell, and what an evil fate. So in other words, cowardice in battle is actually considered to be a mortal sin uh, in Islam. And you find that in the later sin lists uh, that are so common. The verse right after is uh, in, in 17, it says, It was not you who slew them, but Allah. And when you threw, it was actually Allah who threw, so that he might generously reward the believers. Again, the total identification there between God and the Muslims and the fighting process. Uh, inside the surah, there's mention of angels that help uh, out on the battlefield. This is a common, really, throughout uh, the other different surahs that were uh, where the thematic battles are discussed. But the primary topic of the uh, of the surah, uh, which is entitled "The Spoils," uh, is what to do with the spoils that one gains from battle. And so the decisive verse in that particular case is verse number 41, where it says, And know whatever booty you take, the fifth thereof is for Allah, the apostle, near of kin, the orphan, and the wayfarer, if you really believe in Allah. This lays down for the Muslims what is to be the fate of, uh, of materials that are taken in warfare. Where are they to be used? And we'll allude to it at a later time. 
Um, there's other different important verses inside this, uh, this particular text, but suffice it to say that the major issue that came out of the Battle of Badr is a close identification of Islam with victory and a sense that, uh, that Islam had an inevitability about it that was being mandated by God and that the Muslims really could actually do anything. Now, that lent Islam a sense of inevitability uh, during the years that followed it that was unfortunately too large to be supported by actual events. And so the very next year, you find that, uh, that Muslims had to face a defeat at the Battle of Uhud in 626. That's the subject of uh, part of, of Surah number three, where all those different theological issues that are placed upon victory then have to be confronted. And the question asked, why did God allow defeat in this particular case? And so we read uh, in Surah number uh, three, verse 139, it says, uh, it says, if you have been afflicted by a wound, a similar wound has afflicted others. Such are the times we alternate them be- among the people so that Allah might know who are the believers and choose martyrs from among you. Allah does not like the evildoers. And that Allah might purify the believers and annihilate the unbelievers. Or did you suppose that you will enter paradise before Allah has known who were those of you who have struggled and who were those who were steadfast? Now, this is a very interesting uh, segment of verses, uh, completely contradictory to the tone of the verses that you find in, in Surah number 8. Uh, Allah here is presented as wanting to test the believers, and this is really the only place inside the Quran where we find that word martyr, meaning the sort of martyr that actually dies in, uh, on behalf of his or her faith. We'll talk about that in the second section of uh, the of the lectures, but uh, the issue right here is is that uh, is that Allah is basically saying, no, you're not going to win every single battle. We're going to alternate them between different uh, different sides. The sense of victory is not overwhelming, and Allah needs to know who is uh, absolutely steadfast. A very interesting segment of verses, to put it mildly. Um, and not surprisingly here in a defeat by the Muslims, we find verses that are very closely uh, and centrally attached to the doctrine of martyrdom. In verses 169 and 170, we find, uh, and do not think those who have been killed in the way of Allah as dead. They are rather living with their Lord well provided for rejoicing in what their Lord has given them of his bounty. And they rejoice for those who stayed behind and not join them knowing that they have nothing to fear and that they shall not grieve. That phrase, the way of Allah, is gradually at this particular time becoming, again, a euphemism for what will eventually become al-jihad fi sabilallah, jihad in the way of God. And so gradually over a period of years, then uh, jihad becomes uh, localized around that particular phrase. We will come back to the discussion of what exactly is the significance of those verses at a later time. So the Battle of Uhud had several different issues as well. 
First of all, it, it to some extent weakened the theological significance that uh, that Muslims placed upon victory, but not destroyed it entirely. It also demonstrated that Islam couldn't be actually defeated by just military defeat. And that there was something more significant there that was happening that was well beyond merely we're going to join the side that is actually winning. And so this is probably, in my opinion, the, the point where, where Muhammad was actually at his best, uh, where he was able to take uh, some sort of victory out of ashes uh, which unfortunately he chose to do by annihilating a Jewish tribe right at that particular point um, and further consolidating his hold over the city of Medina. But nonetheless, uh, here is a moment where, uh, where the power of jihad or martyrdom is revealed inside the early uh, Muslim religion. Surah number 33 is equally important. Uh, it's closely associated with uh, the, the Battle of the Khandaq, in 627, in which uh, the major issue was uh, a, a large-scale alliance against the prophet that had uh, gathered both Jews, uh, Qurishis, and certain elements of the Muslim community who did not uh, fully subscribe to the leadership of Muhammad uh, together. And so the major focus of the surah is actually against traitors inside the Muslim camp, and how one should deal with those people who are at least nominally Muslim, but uh, do not choose to actually fight under the leadership of the prophet. And not surprisingly, the judgment against them is extremely harsh. And I'm not going to read any particular sections from this, but it's uh, the, the descriptions of, the, of these, this group known as the hypocrites uh, are extremely negative all the way through the Quran. And this has lasting significance within Islam because it always gives the sense that there aren't just Muslims. One has the right and even the obligation to discuss what is the quality of one's Islam. Now, that has only been important in certain cases inside Islamic history, but it's certainly important today where in contemporary Islam, the probably the dominant feature of radical Islam that one sees on the outside is that necessity to judge other Muslims and to decide who is a true Muslim and who is a false Muslim. One finds the scriptural uh, basis for those sort of descriptions uh, going back to surah number 33. Then the last surah that needs to be discussed is surah number 9. Uh, which is uh, chronologically one of the last surahs inside the Quran. This is a surah that, uh, that's usually dated from the last year of the Prophet's life, and it's the only surah in the Quran that opens without the uh, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, which makes it interesting overall. It's a, it's a surah that basically appears to be more of a political proclamation than uh, anything else. And it starts off with uh, abrogating all other different agreements that the Muslim community, Muhammad, has made with anyone else inside the Arabian Peninsula and continues to verse number five, which is probably one of the most important jihadic verses that, uh, that exists inside the Quran. 
It says, then when the sacred months are over, uh, the proclamation allows for a period of four months uh, for people to repent. Kill the idolaters wherever you find them. Take them as captives. Besiege them and lie in wait for them at every point of observation. If they repent afterwards, perform the prayer and pay the alms, then release them. So according to classical uh, Muslim interpretation, this verse known as the verse of the sword gives Muslims the right, the, uh, the unfettered right, let's say, to actually attack freely throughout the entire uh, Arabian Peninsula and then by extension really throughout the entire world. The major question that is discussed uh, from a legal point of view is who, who are the idolaters and uh, how far one can go in uh, the issue of actually attacking them. So, but the surah, uh, surah number nine is important for a lot of different issues. As I said, from a chronological point of view, it's usually dated as one of the last surahs. And so since a, a great many of the issues in there are proclamations with regard to both the status of jihad and the status of uh, people that are conquered inside jihad, it's important for us to, uh, to take a look at what it says. Um, the uh, verses number 28 and verses number, uh, and number 29 are extremely important for that purpose. It says in 28, O believers, the polytheists are truly unclean. So let them not come near the sacred mosque after this year of theirs. If you fear poverty, Allah shall enrich you from its bounty if he pleases. And then verse number 20, 29 says, Fight those among the people of the book who do not believe in Allah in the last day. Do not forbid what Allah and his apostles have forbidden, and do not profess the religion, the true religion until they pay, pay the poll tax out of hand and submissively. From the point of view of an outsider, this particular verse right here is the most important one inside the entire Quran. Um, the term, the people of the book, is well known from other different sources and includes those who, from a Muslim point of view, have some, had some sort of revelation prior to uh, the time of Islam uh, that has been corrupted in some way or another and usually includes Jews, Christians, and the mysterious groups of the Sabians. And then, uh, by extension, to some extent, Zoroastrians, perhaps Buddhists, and even in certain cases, Hindus, although there's problems with that. But uh, the fact that it says, fight those people of the book, basically gives uh, the, the verse of the sword a type of a target. Who are they supposed to fight now that the uh, now that the the Arabian Peninsula, for the most part, is uh, dominated and Muslim? And so it gives them uh, it gives the uh, the Muslims an actual reason why they need to be fought. They do not believe in Allah. They do not believe in the last day. They do not forbid what Allah and His Apostle have forbidden. This is another catchphrase that comes back to the doctrine of al-amr bil-ma'ruf wa nahyan al-munkar, the uh, commanding the good and forbidding the evil that is so extremely important inside the Muslim social order. In other words, one of the reasons why Muslims have to attack Christians and Jews is because both Christians and Jews do not enforce in a positive way the sort of statutes that, uh, that God has laid down. Now, 
the question of how those uh, how those groups should be treated is the subject of the last phrase of that particular verse until they pay the poll tax out of hand and submissively. This basically lays down the sort of relationship that Islam is going to have for uh, those previous religions. In other words, their rights are to continue to live, but they have to live in a submissive manner. And they have to pay. Now, there's no doubt that this was one of the dominant features of early Islam and continued on really until uh, many of these uh, these sort of jizya compacts were uh, collapsed in the 19th century, usually under the uh, the pressure from colonial regimes. But uh, this dhimma, or the protection, that is accorded here to, uh, to, to Jews and Christians, sorry, is uh, of a conditional nature. In other words, it's very conditional upon them acting in a submissive and subordinate role. And so it's not surprising that really throughout uh, jihad literature, it's very important to make sure that the dominated communities don't act in, uh, in a way that will uh, be against this sort of dhimma, this sort of protection compact. And so uh, really throughout Muslim history, we continually find discussions about have the protected communities uh, broken their compact? Is there some sort of a compact with other different uh, communities that have yet to be conquered and so forth? And then the last verse that I'd like to highlight is in Surah number 9, verse 111, uh, which is, uh, is really one of the flagship uh, verses of, uh, of the Quran concerning jihad which is Allah has bought from the believers their lives and their wealth in return for paradise. They fight in the way of Allah, kill and get killed. This is a true promise from him in the Torah, the gospel and the Quran, and who fulfills his promise better than Allah. Rejoice then at the bargain you have made with him, for that is the great triumph. This uh, particular verse and others like it, uh, first of all, are cited in great quantities in the jihad literature, not surprisingly. And they present uh, Islam and its relationship to jihad in, uh, in a contractual sense. In other words, there's some sort of business transaction that is happening right there. The believers give up their lives. They get for it something. They get paradise. Um, it also closely connects Islam with the fighting process. In other words, the believers there are not differentiated from other believers who do not participate in the fighting process. And we'll come back to issues where, where they are, uh, where, that's, uh, where that, that problem is resolved. But here, in this particular verse, it, it presents Muslims as being all willing to, uh, to participate in this contract. And this is a contract that's not only eternal, but it, uh, at least according to the verse, it's one that is subscribed to by all of the major revelations given by God. In other words, the Torah, the gospel, and the Quran. And so it's not merely something that God has given, let's say, to the Muslim community, but he's already given it, at least according to this presentation, to the Jews and the Christians prior to the time that highlights its importance. So Allah's promise here of heaven is uh, pretty crucial. Now, the rewards that are given to the believer 
for martyrdom are uh, problematic. And I'll just touch upon that right here briefly, talking about it much more during the, during the discussion of martyrdom. But uh, the, the issue turns on what is exactly the difference between the rewards that are given to a fighter as opposed to the reward that will be given to all Muslims. And why exactly is the fighter's reward so much more significant if it's not differentiated that much inside the Quran? Now, inside the Quran, we find a lot of material of descriptions of heaven. Those descriptions, however, are never mentioned specifically with regard to martyrs. And so that presents a problem. Why exactly should one give up one's life if the rewards for, uh, for all Muslims are pretty substantial and those inside the Quran are not specified specifically for, uh, for fighters? And so that's, that's, a, that's a point at which the Quran kind of finishes and the Hadith literature has to take up. It's something that's never really completely resolved. At the very end of the Quran or those chronologically uh, final surahs of the Quran, we begin to find some of that tension that's building up inside the text, that there should be some difference for those people, but it's not actually specified inside the text. So summing up the Quranic material on jihad, one can say, first of all, that the word is not present with regard to most of this material. It's not actually called jihad inside the Quran. So one of our superimpositions is to interpret the Quranic material with regard to fighting as jihad material. Now, it's not illegitimate, in my opinion, to actually do that, um, because after all, one is uh, following in the footsteps of Muslims who have likewise done that. But it should be noted that this, is a, that this is a problem, that there is a basic break right there between the sort of fighting that is described as being sanctified fighting inside the Quran that is usually referred to as kital, and that which is described in the later Muslim literature as jihad. Second of all, uh, a huge amount of the Quran is actually devo devoted to fighting. And that cannot be gotten around. It's something that basically Muslims have to, uh, to live with. It's, it's something that cannot be interpreted away or uh, easily explained away. Thirdly, uh, the material as we have it is still, is still very partial. The material that is devoted to jihad doesn't give us an entire picture of, of the jihad that we're going to later describe as being Muslim jihad. It's still very much in a formative uh, position inside the Quranic uh, text. So with that, I'd like to transition a little bit into the Hadith materials. As we know from other different lectures, the Hadith materials are that vast corpus of literature that purports to be uh, both eyewitness accounts of the Prophet Muhammad's activities or his various different sayings uh, and or 
relating various different things that he purportedly said, all with the objective of actually living one's life entirely as the prophet lived, which forms the basis for the sunnah. In other words, a Sunni must live according to the way that the prophet lived. The only way that, the, 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 that one can find out how the prophet lived is to go to the Hadith literature. Now, the fundamental problem with the Hadith literature is the fact that it's, again, just like the Quran, uh, hugely contradictory. And so, basically, from our point of view, this, uh, this material has uh, to be dated from a considerably later time than the prophet uh, himself. And personally, I don't think that any of it can be traced back to the prophet Muhammad at all. But uh, the material probably does date from the period of the great Muslim conquests. Now, these conquests were, as I said, heralded by the, uh, the prophet's last attacks against the Byzantine Empire where he pushed to the north, the Byzantine Empire had just come back into the area of uh, Syria-Palestine, and that was uh, the particular point where Muhammad and the Muslims began to move to the north. Now, these conquests were huge. The conquests were huge, and there's just no way that one can get around uh, their significance within Islam. In my opinion, uh, if you really want to understand what exactly is the core of, uh, of Islam, you would have to go to the Quran and to the conquests. Those are the two events, in my opinion, that really give Islam its uh, driving power. The Quran as a sense of the last revelation, a revelation to an ignored and despised people, the Arabs, and uh, the conquests as a sense of upliftment, of opening of new horizons, and of a radical and complete change of the political, social, and cultural scene of the Middle East that happened. So the conquests uh, basically, and now one can't say that the conquests are without their problems as well, um, but they definitely take place in some way or another uh, over the period of the next hundred years after the death of the prophet in 632. And uh, they, first of all, pushed to the north, coming across the Byzantine Empire and gradually pushing the Byzantines uh, back into the area which today we would call Turkey. We'll come back to that point because the uh, defeat of the Byzantines and uh, their... The problems with the fact that they weren't completely defeated uh, was something that bedeviled Islam uh, really uh, for the next seven centuries. Um, Muslims pushed east into Iran, uh, all the way into Afghanistan and Central Asia, uh, all the way into India and south into the areas of Yemen, uh, parts of Ethiopia, and perhaps even down along the coast of Africa. And west into Egypt, uh, along the coast of uh, North Africa, all the way into Spain, and ultimately into France and southern Italy. So this conquest really was a transformative event. It's one that uh, finds few parallels in history. Uh, it, uh, first of all, was fast. It was lasting. 
it changed the the landscape of the entire Middle East from Greco-Roman and Sasanian culture to essentially an Arab culture. And although, in my opinion, it wasn't it wasn't accompanied by an immediate conversion to Islam, there was definitely over a long period of time conversion and a gradual Muslim majority that uh, was assembled by around six, seven centuries after the times of the first conquests. So it was, this, uh, it was this transformative event that basically created, in my opinion, the Hadith literature. Now, the Hadith literature, from, uh, from a jihadic point of view, contains all of that material that gave the early Muslim conquerors the spiritual impetus to actually take, uh, take on the deeds that they did. Now, I say that with some hesitation, um, and not all scholars would agree that that hesitation is warranted. And the problem that I have with it is basically that nowhere in the sources uh, concerning the conquest do you find the word jihad. And so you have to confront the problem once again if jihad is the driving force behind these conquests, and it seems logical that it is, because uh, you already have this material that's inside the Quran, and you have this later Hadith material that could possibly be dated back to the conquest, then it seems logical that uh, these conquests are being driven by jihad. And yet it raises the question about why is that word not mentioned? And that's not a, a question that I can easily answer. So I'm going to tentatively assume that the doctrine that was pushing it was jihad. I think that even if it wasn't linguistically jihad, it at least was ideologically related to the material that later on we would call jihad. Now the problem with that jihad was, first of all, it was a failure in the eyes of the people that were doing it. And the reason why it was a failure is because it didn't completely replace the true ideological opponent of Islam, which was Christianity. It could not reach that last section of Christianity, which at that time seemed comparatively uh, unimportant, the uh, European section, or the Byzantine section of Christianity, which was much, much more important and which provided uh, Muslims with a powerful ideological and religious foe that uh, could not be easily dominated. And so, basically, Muslims had to confront that question of why did God allow these vast conquests and just at the moment where victory seems like it's within their grasp, then it slips away. And that happened basically in the 714s, 715s, and onwards. Now, from a historical point of view, the reason why that happened was basically the Arabs ran out of manpower. But from a religious point of view, it's very difficult to understand that particular point. So the Muslims were left with a very large empire, but it wasn't complete. 
Now, uh, in the third section of lectures, I'll talk about the apocalyptic significance of that particular moment. And that's, uh, it's a very crucial moment. But we'll come back here to the Hadith reasons. Okay? From a Hadith point of view, this is the point where you begin to find traditions that are lauding the reappearance of jihad. And it's my opinion that the reason why those traditions appear at that particular point is not because the jihad was a success, but because it was a failure. And that there was need to encourage its reappearance. As jihad became uh, more and more of a distant memory, especially in the ninth century, then we, that's the point where we begin to find that first jihad literature. The Kitab al-Jihad of Abdullah bin al-Mubarak, who died in 797, uh, who's a figure of absolutely crucial importance to the study of jihad uh, in many, many different ways, because he provides us with a, uh, with a paradigm of the sort of jihadi figure that becomes the hero for Muslims. Abdullah bin al-Mubarak was a figure who grew up in the, uh, the eastern section of Islam and migrated specifically to the Byzantine border in order to fight the Byzantines. And when he was asked why exactly he did that, when the Quranic verse says, fight those unbelievers who are nearest you, he was, uh, he was asked with regard to the Turks, who were the unbelievers who were nearest him. Uh, he said that, uh, that there are some believers, unbelievers who are more important and some that are less important. And the Christians are the most important. And so he migrated specifically to Syria to fight the Christians. Now, he's also very interesting, not just because of his life choice, but because of his relationship to the government. And we'll come back to this uh, in, uh, in a little bit. But his relationship to the government was a hostile one. He was uh, essentially a, a, a learned Muslim, an alim, uh, and he had very hostile relations with the caliph of his time, Harun al-Rashid. Basically, the reason was because, uh, because Harun refused to participate in the jihad. He was more interested in, uh, in worldly things. And so with Abdullah bin al-Mubarak, you see the beginnings of what we can call the ascetic fighter, the one who gave it all up in order to go and live on the border and fight as a border man, deliberately eschewing all sorts of luxuries and so forth, and through that, gaining a huge, huge amount of spiritual prestige. Because in Islam, there is no hierarchy. Uh, over the centuries, really, it's the sense of spiritual prestige that's actually become the most important. Uh, and so Abdullah bin al-Mubarak really is... Uh, is quite crucial in that regard. So what are the contents of the Kitab al-Jihad? The Kitab al-Jihad uh, presents uh, a salvational form of jihad. I'm going to read a few traditions that indicate that. Okay, one of the flagship traditions, the, the, it's inside the Kitab al-Jihad. It says, Behold, God sent me, in other words, Muhammad, with a sword just before the hour of judgment, and place my daily sustenance beneath the shadow of my spear, and humiliation and contempt upon those who oppose me. 
Now, this particular tradition is, uh, is quite widespread, but we, we find it for the first time documented inside the Kitab al-Jihad. Um, and it presents the Muslim community as an eternally fighting community. It has no uh, firm location. In other words, it's continually moving from place to place, fighting with its enemies, uh, living with a sword in hand, uh, and living underneath the shade of the spear. Also, victory is eternal. Victory is basically being promised to those people who fight. Since uh, God sent Muhammad with a sword and so forth. Now, this is accompanied with a large number of traditions in which uh, the figure of the fighter is lauded uh, beyond all proportion to that personality inside the, inside the uh, literature. Um, there's even some ludicrous uh, comments uh, along the, the, the lines of uh, Muhammad uh, cursing merchants and uh, agriculturalists, even though the prophet himself was basically a merchant and an agriculturalist. <laughs> but uh, where it's clear that the figure of the fighter had to be lauded because that personality was, although spiritually important, was from a practical point of view, was, was basically dying out. Um, there's also the apocalyptic sense inside this, uh, inside this hadith as well. But the most important uh, description of the sort of, uh, the sort of salvational aspect of jihad that we find in, in this book is the tradition which uh, reads uh, the following. The slain in jihad are three types of men, a believer who struggles, and that's using the word jahada, to struggle or to fight jihad. And it's from this particular point that we begin to find jihad equals warfare. And when you read the Kitab al-Jihad, you realize that basically it's all dealing with warfare. So he struggles with himself and his possessions in the path of God, recognizing that, uh, that phrase, that catchphrase, the path of God, such that when he meets the, is the enemy in battle, he fights them until he is killed. This shaheed, or martyr, we'll talk about the martyr later on, is tested and is in the camp of God under his throne. There's a very interesting little comment right there. But in this particular collection, the uh, paradise is not described in the same way that it is inside the Quran. Paradise is described as an army camp. Now, one can't say that that description attracted very many people, but you can see the, the, the power of this sort of, of, uh, of eternally fighting uh, lifestyle had in this particular time. So this shaheed is tested and is in the camp of God under his throne. The prophets do not exceed him in merit except for by the level of prophecy. So that's the first guy. The second guy, then a believer committed, uh, committing offenses and sins against himself, who struggles with himself and his possession in the path of God, such that when he meets the enemy in battle, he fights until he is killed. This cleansing wipes away his offenses and his sins. Behold, the sword wipes away sins. Now, it's from a statement like that that you can see the salvational aspect of jihad. And that would be in fairly sharp distinction to normative Islam, where you could never make a statement like the sword wipes away sins, 
one strongly suspects that that is polemical response to something along the lines of the cross wipes away sins. So with Abdullah bin al-Mubarak, you find this, this fixation upon jihad, not just as something that is extra for the Muslim community or spiritually beneficial or nice, but it's the center piece In other words, the believer is not being judged upon whether he does his prayers or whether he gives his zakat or whether he does Ramadan or or so forth. He's being judged upon whether he fought in the jihad. And this is something that that you can find throughout jihadic writings uh, until the present day, is that salvational aspect. So that's the second guy. He's a guy who had actually sinned but he's a repentant man. But the nature of his repentance is the fact that he was willing to die truly in battle. So then the third guy is the hypocrite who struggles with himself and his possessions and the path of God, such that when he meets the enemy in battle, he fights until he is killed. This man is in hell since the sword does not wipe away hypocrisy. Okay, so the third man is a man who fights for spiritually impure motives. And this comes back to, uh, back to jihad as an actual sacrament, which we'll talk about a little bit in the, next, uh, in the next lecture. Jihad is a sacrament. In other words, jihad actually uh, has to be fought not necessarily by military tactics, but also using the spiritual aspect of things. And when one is hypocrite, when one uh, is not fighting for pure spiritual uh, motivations, then not only is the person not going to heaven, not getting the massive rewards that other words uh, that otherwise would give uh, be given to to a shaheed, but he's actually in hell. So, uh, Abdullah bin Mubarak is an extremely important figure inside the development of jihad. We'll come back to him and refer to him repeatedly. Uh, he represents that warrior ascetic. He represents the anti-governmental side of, uh, of, uh, of the jihad. Uh, and he represents uh, the salvational aspect of jihad, which uh, is so common and which probably had some influence over the, the conquest.